0: chapter 9 of volume 2 of eleanor's victory by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by eleanor howard greencastle indiana an insidious demon on a bright september morning a hired carriage took miss vane and her friends to the quiet old church in hart street bloomsbury there was a little crowd assembled about the door of the shoemaker's dwelling, and sympathetic spectators were scattered here and there in the mews, for a marriage is one of those things which the cleverest people never can contrive to keep a secret. Miss Eleanor Vane's pale fawn-colored silk dress, black mantle, and simple white bonnet did not form the established costume of a bride, but the young lady looked so very beautiful in her girlish dress and virginal innocence, that more than one of the lounging grooms who came out of the stable to see her go by to her hired carriage confidentially remarked to an acquaintance that he only wished he could get such a young woman for his missus richard thornton was not in attendance upon the fair young bride there was a scene to be painted for spavin and cromshaw upon that particular day which was more important than any scene dick had ever painted before so the young man set out early upon that september bridal morning after saluting Eleanor Vane in the most tender and brotherly fashion. But I am sorry to say that instead of going straight to the Royal Phoenix Theatre, Mr. Thornton walked with a slow and listless gait across Westminster Bridge, then plunged with a sudden and almost ferocious impetus into the remotest intricacies of Lambeth, scowling darkly at the street boys who came in his way, skirting the Archbishop's palace, glowering at the desolation of Vauxhall, and hurrying far away into the solitudes of Battersea Fields, where he spent the better part of the afternoon in the dreary parlour of an obscure public house, drinking adulterated beer and smoking bad tobacco. The Signora wore a rustling black silk dress, Eleanor's present of the previous Christmas, in honour of her protégé's wedding. But Eliza Picarillo's heart was sadly divided upon this quiet bridal day, half rejoicing in Miss Vane's fortune and advancement, half-sorrowful for poor desolate Dick, wandering away amongst the swamps by the waterside, Mr. Monckton and his two partners were waiting for the bride in the portico of the church. The senior of the two, an old man with white hair, was to give Eleanor away, and paid her many appropriate though rather obsolete compliments upon the occasion. Perhaps it was now for the first time that Miss Vane began to regard the step she was about to take as one of a somewhat serious and indeed awful nature. Perhaps it was now for the first time that she began to think she had committed a sin in accepting Gilbert Monkton's love so lightly. If he knew that I did not promise to marry him because I loved him, but because I wanted to get back to Hazelwood, she thought. But presently the grave shadows passed away from her face, and a faint blush rose to her cheek and brow. I will love him by and by. When I have avenged my father's death, she said to herself. Some such thought as this was in her mind when she took her place beside Gilbert Monkton at the altar. The autumn sunshine streamed in upon them through the great windows of the church and wrapped them in yellow light, like the figures of Joseph and Mary in an old picture. The bride and bridegroom looked very handsome standing side by side in this yellow sunshine. Gilbert Monckton's twenty years seniority only dignified and exalted him, investing the holy marriage promise of love and protection with a greater solemnity than it could have had when spoken by a stripling of one or two and twenty. Everything seemed auspicious upon this wedding morning. The lawyer's partners were in the highest spirits. The beadle and pew-opener were elevated by the idea of prospective donations. The signora wept quietly while the marriage service was being read thinking of her nephew Richard smoking and drinking desperately, perhaps in his desolate painting-room. But when the ceremony was over the good music-mistress dried her tears, banishing all traces of sorrow before she kissed and complimented the bride. "'You are to come and see us at the Priory, dear Signora,' Eleanor said, as she clung about her friend before leaving the vestry. "'Gilbert says so, you know.' Her voice faltered a little, and she glanced shyly at her husband as she spoke of him by his christian name it seemed as if she had no right to allude so familiarly to mr monckton of deholdale Priory. and presently eliza Picarillo stood alone or attended only by the beadle obsequiously attentive in proportion to the liberality of the donation he had just received under the portico of the bloomsbury church watching the lawyer's carriage drive away towards the great northern railway station Mr. Monckton, in the absence of any preference upon Eleanor's part, had chosen a quiet Yorkshire watering-place as the scene of his honeymoon. Signora Piccarillo sighed as she went down the steps before the church, and took her seat in the hired vehicle that was to take her back to the pilasters. So Bloomsbury has seen the last of Eleanor, she thought sadly. We may go down and see her, perhaps, in her grand new house, but she will never come back to us, she will never wash the tea-things and make tea and toast again for a tired-out old music-mistress. The dying glory of red and orange in the last sunset of September sank behind the grey line of the German Ocean after the closing day of Gilbert Monckton's honeymoon. Upon the 1st of October the lawyer was to take his young wife to toldell Priory. Mr. and Mrs. Monckton walked upon the broad sands as that low orange light faded out of the western sky. The lawyer was grave and silent, and every now and then cast a furtive glance at his companion's face. Sometimes that glance was succeeded by a sigh. Eleanor was paler and more careworn than she had looked since the day after her visit to the shipbroker's office. The quiet and seclusion of the place to which Gilbert Monckton had brought his bride had given her ample opportunity of brooding on the one idea of her life had he plunged her into a vortex of gaiety, it is possible that she might have been true to that deep-rooted purpose which she had so long nursed in her breast. But on the other hand there would have been some hope that the delights of change and novelty, delights to which youth cannot be indifferent, might have beguiled the bride from that forever recurring train of thought which separated her from her husband as effectually as if an ocean had rolled between them. Yes, Gilbert Monckton had discovered the fatal truth that marriage is not always union, and that the holiest words that were ever spoken cannot weave the mystic web which makes two souls indissolubly one, if there be one inharmonious thread in the magical fabric. Gilbert Monckton felt this, and knew that there was some dissonant note in the chord which should have been such a melodious combination. Again and again, while talking to his wife, Carried away, perhaps, by the theme of which he was speaking, and counting on her sympathy as a matter of course, he had looked into Eleanor's face, and seen that her thoughts had wandered far away from him and his conversation, into some unknown region. He had no clue by which he could follow those wanderings, no chance word ever fell from his wife's lips which might serve as the traitor's silk that guided ruthless Eleanor to Rosamond's hiding-place. So thus, before the honeymoon was over, Gilbert Monckton began to be jealous of his bride, thereby fostering for himself a nest of scorpions, or a very flock of young vultures, which were henceforth to make their meals off his entrails. But it was not the ferocious or Othello-like jealousy. The green-eyed monster did not appear under his more rugged and uncivilized form, finding a vent for his passions in pillows, poisons, and poniards. The monster disguised himself as a smooth and philosophical demon. He hid his diabolical attributes under the gravity and wisdom of a friendly sage. In other words, Gilbert Monckton, feeling disappointed at the result of his marriage, set himself to reason upon the fact, and was forever torturing himself with silent arguments and mute conjectures as to the cause of that indescribable something in his young wife's manner, which told him there was no perfect union between them the lawyer reproached himself for his weak folly in having built a fairy palace of hope upon the barren fact of eleanor's acceptance of his hand did not girls situated as george vane's daughter had been situated marry for money again and again in these mercenary days who should know this better than gilbert monckton the solicitor who had drawn up so many marriage settlements been concerned in so many divorces and assisted at so many matrimonial bargains whose sordid motives were as undisguised as in any sale of cattle transacted in the purlieus of Smithfield. Who should know better than he that beautiful and innocent girls every day bartered their beauty and innocence for certain considerations set down by grave lawyers, and engrossed upon sheets of parchment at so much per sheet? He did know this, and in his mad arrogance he had said to himself, I, amongst all other men, Will be an exception to the common rule the girl i marry is poor but she will give herself to me for no meaner considerations than my love and my truth and my devotion and those shall be hers until my dying day gilbert monckton had said this and already a mocking demon had made a permanent perch for himself upon this wretched man's shoulders forever whispering insidious doubts into his ear Forever instilling shadowy fears into his mind. Eleanor had not seemed happy during those few honeymoon weeks. She had grown weary of the broad sands stretching far away, flat and desolate under the September sky, and weary of the everlasting and unbroken line that bounded the wide grey sea. This weariness she had displayed frankly enough, but she had not revealed its hidden source which lay in her feverish impatience to go back to the neighbourhood of Hazelwood, and to make the discovery she wished to make before Maurice de Crespigny's death. She had sounded her husband upon the subject of the old man's health. "'Do you think Mr. de Crespigny will live long?' she asked one day. "'Oh, heaven knows, my dear,' the lawyer answered carelessly. "'He has been an invalid for nearly twenty years now, and he may go on being an invalid for twenty years more, perhaps. I fancy that his death will be very sudden whenever it does happen.' AND DO YOU THINK THAT HE WILL LEAVE HIS MONEY TO LANCELOT DARRELL? Eleanor's FACE GREW A LITTLE PALER AS SHE MENTIONED THE YOUNG MAN'S NAME. THE INVISIBLE FAMILIAR PERCHED UPON MR. MONKTON'S SHOULDER DIRECTED THE LAWYER'S ATTENTION TO THAT FACT. I DON'T KNOW. WHY SHOULD YOU BE INTERESTED IN MR. DARRELL'S WELFARE? I AM NOT INTERESTED IN HIS WELFARE. I ONLY ASKED YOU A QUESTION, GILBERT. Even the malice of the familiar could take no objection to the tone in which Eleanor said this, and Mr. Monckton was ashamed of the passing twinge which Lancelot Darrell's name had caused him. "'I dare say De Crispigny will leave his money to young Darrell, my dear,' he said in a more cordial voice, and though I have no very high opinion of the young man's character, I think he ought to have the fortune. The maiden ladies should have annuities, of course. Heaven knows they have fought hard enough for the prize.' "'How can people act so contemptibly for the sake of money?' cried Eleanor, with sudden indignation. The lawyer looked admiringly at her glowing face, which had crimsoned with the intensity of her feeling. She was thinking of her father's death, and of that hundred pounds which had been won from him on the night of his suicide. "'No,' thought Mr. Monckton, "'she cannot be mercenary. That bright, impulsive creature could never be guilty of any deliberate meanness.' And what could be a worse meanness than that of the woman who would marry a man out of sordid and mercenary motives, beguiling him by a simulated affection, in order to compass her own advancement? If I have won her heart, in its untainted freshness, thought Gilbert Monckton, I must be content, though that girlish heart may seem cold. She will love me better, by and by. She will learn to confide in me. She will learn to sympathize with me. By such arguments as these Mr. Monckton endeavoured to satisfy himself, and sometimes indeed succeeded in doing so, that his young wife's absent and thoughtful manner was a matter of course, the thoughtfulness of a girl unused to her new position, and perhaps a little bewildered by its strangeness. But on the morning of the first of October Gilbert Monckton perceived a change in Eleanor's manner, and on that morning the demon familiar took up a permanent station upon the lawyer's shoulder." Mrs. Monckton was no longer grave and listless. A feverish impatience, a sudden flow of high spirits, seemed to have taken possession of her. "'You observe,' whispered the demon familiar, as Mr. Monckton sat opposite his wife in a compartment of the express train that was to take them to London, en route for Berkshire. You observe the glow in her cheeks, the brightness of her eyes. You saw her turn pale the other day, when she mentioned Lancelot Darrell's name.' You know what the young man's mother told you. You can do the commonest sum in logical arithmetic, I suppose. You can put two and two together. Your wife has been wearied to death of the north and the sea and the sands and of you. She is in high spirits to day, and it is very easy to account for the change in her manner. She is glad to go back to Berkshire. She is glad to go back there because she will see Lancelot Darrell. Mr. Monckton, with a cambric handkerchief thrown over his face, kept a covert watch upon his wife from between its artfully adjusted folds, and enjoyed such converse as this with the spirit he had chosen for his companion. End of chapter 9 of Volume 2